If you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. We are excited to be celebrating baptisms today in just a little bit. We're also excited because we're beginning a new study. We're going to be walking through the book of Acts, which is just an exhilarating book that details the origins of the church. I also want you to know that I have a heavy heart this morning. Uh, Yesterday, I had the privilege and honor of doing a memorial service for Amy Martin's brother, who went to be with the Lord a short time ago. And then just a few minutes ago, found out that Christy's father passed away. So please keep her and her family and our family, obviously, in your prayers. It makes the truths that we will be talking about this morning all the more poignant. So would you join me as I ask the Lord to to lead us now? Our Father and our King, we love you and we are so grateful that the things that we talk about on Sunday, the things that we sing about on Sunday, the things that we proclaim to be true on Sunday are in fact true at every moment of every day. It gives us hope that Jesus is alive. It gives us hope that he is reigning even now in glory. And we have already exalted in that truth in song this morning. And Father, we are fully confident of that. So now would you minister to your people? Would you lead us by your Spirit? So that we might see the glory of Jesus revealed all the more fully as we walk through our time together now. And we ask these things. In his great name, amen. So many of you are familiar with Albert Moeller, who's the current president of Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, Dr. Moeller's intellect and his productivity and his personal library are the stuff of legend. He's a theologian and he's a historian and widely considered to be the leading public evangelical intellectual of our time, besides Eric S. Mark, of course. (laughs) At 33, Moeller spearheaded the theological recovery of Southern Seminary against very hostile opposition. He hosts multiple podcasts, has written books and countless articles on culture and Christian worldview, and he travels the country speaking and preaching, to just name a few of his labors. Moeller is what the Brits call a man in full. And that detail is important to provide in order to understand the context for a comment that one of Moeller's friends made about him. He said... Being friends with Al is like watching a historical biography lived out in real time before my own eyes. Today, we begin our study of the book of Acts. 
The book's very opening words indicate that Luke, the author of Acts, is writing part two of a historical account of all that was happening during the most exhilarating time in the history of the world, namely the time surrounding the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, our beloved Lord. From the very moment Jesus ascends into the clouds in the opening verses of this book to the, to the ministry of Paul in Rome as the book comes to a close, the events described in this book must have felt to Luke like, like multiple historical biographies converging all together, being lived out in real time right before his own very eyes. I, for one, am so grateful the Holy Spirit prompted Luke to record everything that he was seeing and hearing. Brothers and sisters, I, I, I hold in my hands not just a historically accurate record of the early years of the church, but I hold in my hand the very word of Almighty God. I can't wait to dive into this book. Our passage this morning really is the first few verses of Acts, probably one through five. I want, I want to read all the way down to verse 11 to get these, this opening scene before us. Hear the word of our glorious God. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men by them in white robes, Two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Lord, would you lead us now by your spirit to see the glory revealed in these incredible words. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's walk through our time since this is an introduction to the book by asking four questions. First, let's spend some time asking and answering who wrote Acts. 
Now, maybe some of you know that. Kids, do you know who wrote Acts? Maybe you can whisper it to, to your parents. It's important for us both to know who wrote Acts and to, and to understand why we know that Luke wrote Acts. So I want to spend a little bit of time talking about that. Plus, it's important because the tie-in between the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles is crucial for understanding some of the important trajectories of thought in Acts. Second, let's talk about and answer the question, what's the theme verse of Acts? And here we're really just trying to tackle the central thrust, the narrow message of the book. And that leads us to understand how Acts is organized. We'll answer that question. And this, this really is a crucial and somewhat difficult question. But for the sake of clarity, we need to, we need to, we need to tackle it. And then finally, having understood these matters, I want to talk a little bit more about the overall message of Acts. Our book opens with these words. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So right out of the gate. The way the book opens offers some really intriguing clues to its author. And just in verse 1, we learn that a previous book has been written. So Acts appears to be the sequel or part 2 of that work. The initial recipient was a man named Theophilus, who is presumably a leader or, or, or perhaps some type of benefactor in the church or in the region. Maybe he funded some of Paul's missionary journeys or perhaps Luke's writing project. The author intends on continuing his previous focus, which is to communicate what Jesus began to do and to teach. We learn all of this just in the first verse of the book. Theophilus is a unique name, so it kind of jogs our memories. We've got... we've tackled some interesting names over the past two weeks between Tychicus and now Theophilus. Uh, Theophilus is the man that is referenced at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. So if, if you have your Bibles with you, just turn back a couple of books with me to the very opening verses of the Gospel of Luke. Where we read these words. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. I love the phrase at the end of verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. You know, we live in a culture where the only thing that's considered valid is is, is your truth, 
or, or my truth, but not the truth. How good to know we have an anchor in God's word, which is in fact the truth. Now, in addition to the fact that that both of these books, Luke and Acts, are addressed to the same person, the author references the first book here with several themes that are carried from Luke 24 into Acts 1. And I, I would recommend that you take a look later. Just read through Luke 24 and then read through Acts 1 and you'll say, oh, There they are, every one of those things, including proofs of the resurrection of Jesus, the promise to send the Holy Spirit, the apostles waiting in Jerusalem, the commission to witness to or proclaim the gospel, and the ascension of Jesus. These are are no small things. These are massive themes, and they're there in Luke 24, and they're here in Acts one. These similarities indicate that Acts and Luke's were written by the same person. Who might that person be? The reason that we believe that Luke is the author is first, there's a consistency among the historical tradition of the early church that, that Luke was in fact the author of both books. He was not a prominent person in the New Testament. In fact, Luke was only mentioned three times, just by way of comparison. If you hadn't just heard a sermon that mentioned Tychicus last week from Ephesians, would you have any idea who he really was and what he had done? In fact, he's mentioned five times in the New Testament. Luke's only mentioned three. So Luke is not not prominent in the New Testament. The reason this is important is because Luke only became well-known in the church, especially after the first century, precisely because he was known to be the author of Luke and Acts. He doesn't figure prominently, so this is a subtle, but it's a a powerful argument affirming his authorship. The only reason that we know who Luke is really today is because he was known to be the author of this book and of the gospel of Luke. Second, By the process of elimination, basically, if we look at the we statements that the author uses as he goes through the book, uh, particularly in Acts 16 and Acts 20 and Acts 21, Acts 27, Acts 28, we learn by process of elimination that Luke is the most likely author of this book. So let's just pause for a moment right out of the gate, and exult in the reality that God has left us a detailed account of the beginning of the church. The the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, is utterly unique in this sense. We would have no idea how some of the things came to be in the letters or the epistles that are written in the New Testament because we have nothing that fills the gap between the Gospels and the epistles except for one glorious work, and that is the Acts of the Apostles. Now, who knows if Theophilus first approached Luke with the idea of writing these things down? Or maybe Paul said, you know, Luke... 
there's a lot of things happening. It might be a good idea for you to record these things as we experience them because God is doing a glorious work. Or it might be the case, as the beginning of the Gospel of Luke seems to indicate, that it just seemed good to Luke. And that, in fact, that's what he says, because he had been following things closely. It could be as simple as that. It just seemed good to him. If that's true, consider if there's anything that you've been thinking about in your own life that simply seems good to you, seems like it would be pleasing to the Lord. Perhaps you feel prompted by the Holy Spirit to do it. If that's the case, may I encourage you to follow through with that? Whatever it is, who knows what the Lord may want to do with you? You could be investing in the life of a young person right now, and you might be long gone before the fruit is born in that person's life. And there's no telling what God might do through that person. The literal reality is that this simple act of faith, this obedience, this spirit-led obedience by Luke, is something that is blessing people, literally billions and billions of people, 2,000 years later. It's just amazing. Now, as we press in a little bit further, it's important to identify the central theme or the main point of the book of Acts or of any book, much like it's important to understand the main point of a, of a sermon. Otherwise, you might be able to identify some biblical ideas that are happening, but you'll have no idea how they're all tied together or what the purpose of them actually is. For example... The main point of my message today is simply to lay out some key issues regarding Acts so that we would understand the book better, be better prepared to go through our study. My goal is that God would both encourage us today and whet our appetites to walk through the book going forward. Now, even though I may touch on some other ideas, everything I'm saying is related to this main goal, this main purpose so for the sake of clarity, it's just helpful to know that. The central theme of Acts is clearly laid out in the key verse of the book, namely Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So even though Luke may touch on some other ideas, it helps to know that that is the key to the whole book. Let's make sure we don't just kind of glaze over the glory of this commission. Think about how noble and how privileged, how dignified and how holy and how important this calling or this command given to us in Acts 1.8, actually is. This call, this commission applies to you. 
And it applies to me. It applies to all of us who name the name of Christ. Filled with the Holy Spirit of God, we have the honor of speaking the greatest message ever communicated on behalf of the greatest being who has ever lived to the people in greatest need of his message. There is so much at stake. We have been called to serve as witnesses, declaring and discussing and persuading and pleading with people to believe the truth. That is the gospel truth that we have been sent by God to share with them. It's a sobering reality. But my hope is that it fills you with joy at the thought of what God is calling us to do. And I pray that it fills all of us with a sense of urgency. The book of Acts is essentially organized to show how the church fulfilled the commission given in 1.8 during the years, during the years immediately following the ascension of Jesus into glory. Now, from this central idea, the organization of the book flows. The central theme is the key to understanding how it's organized. Acts is, is basically laid out in six sections. There's, there, there's other things that are important, like Peter is featured prominently at the beginning of the book, and, and Paul is featured prominently towards the end of the book. There's a lot of geography happening in the book, and that's important, but not many of us could hold those towns in our mind and know where they are geographically to any real impact without having a map right in, in front of us. So I think the best way to understand how the book is laid out is to realize it, it is laid out in six sections. It details the spread of the gospel in and to various regions, beginning with Jerusalem, then to Judea and Samaria and Galilee, to the Gentiles, to what is modern-day Turkey, to Europe, and, to, and finally to Rome. And I'm, I'm using some modern language there so that we get an idea of where these first century towns are now located. We can basically think about the gospel as, as going out in concentric circles. But the reason we can be confident that this is the right way to organize the book is because Luke gives us a summary statement at the end of each one of these sections. So that's what cues us in to know what he's doing. For example, at the end of our first section, chapter 6 and verse 7, We read, and the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples in Jerusalem multiplied greatly in number, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. First of all, that's super interesting. I can't wait to get there, because the temple was in Jerusalem. Imagine being a priest who, who ministered in the presence of God all day long, and then you hear a message about one whose sacrifice is once for all, and now you have zero responsibilities. Praise God for the good news of the gospel. Now, in chapter 9 and verse 31, we read, summary statement, so the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it 
multiplied. So there's the summary statement about this region. What's also fascinating about this is that there is peace in the church and they are being comforted by the presence of the Holy Spirit. The reason that's crucial is because the church scattered because of the martyrdom of Stephen and because of the subsequent persecution. So praise God for his kindness to his people that as the church spread out to Judea and Samaria, they had peace and were comforted by the Holy Spirit. Now, as the book progresses, we get to this big, broad category considered to be the ends of the earth. Because we find ourselves in that destination, the summary statements become less geographical and more concentrated on the glorious power of the Word of God, that is, of the message of the gospel itself. For example, chapter 12 and verse 24, but the Word of God flourished and multiplied. Chapter 16 and verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily, or chapter 19 and verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And at the very end of the book, chapter 28, verses 30 and 31, we read, Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So at this point, the gospel has actually reached Rome. The reason this is significant is that there is now a foothold in the capital city of the most dominant nation on earth. Did you put up the map? just gives you an idea of where Jerusalem and Samaria and Judea are. And then concentrically, it flows out. This area of Galatia and Ephesus and where the church of the Colossians was located is modern-day Turkey. And then Corinth and Thessalonica is Greece, basically, and going up into Europe. And then, of course, Rome there above the boot of Italy. And then the whole rest of the world is in that big category of the ends of the earth. I want you to be encouraged by this reality. If you ever feel discouraged about the spread of the gospel in our time or the influence of our culture in this day, take heart because because the church since the very first days after Jesus' ascension has been taking down strongholds filled with the Holy Spirit and armed with absolutely nothing. Zero, except for one thing, the sword of the Spirit, which is the very word of God. If the gospel made it over mountains and if the gospel made it through valleys and past fortified nations and and across an ocean to reach us, then the gospel, it can make it into your children's hearts. The gospel can make it across your driveway to your neighbor's heart. 
the gospel can make it into the cubicle next to you at work. The gospel can penetrate your school and minister to one of your classmates. The gospel is the most effective transforming power in all creation. The kingdom of God is literally unstoppable. So joyfully and confidently and fervently and passionately and lovingly serve as witnesses to the greatness of the glory of Jesus Christ even to the ends of the earth, brothers and sisters. The Holy Spirit is more than capable of accomplishing the purpose of, of the Father as he brings glory to the Son. Indeed, he will convict the world of all sin and righteousness. We can move forward. We can move forward with confidence because Jesus declared, I will build my church and the gates of hell cannot stand against it. The plan continues to move forward. There is no plan B. This mission fuels the overall message of the book of Acts. Luke masterfully ties the beginning of Acts to the end of his gospel by reminding us of proof Jesus is alive, by recalling the promise of Jesus to send the Holy Spirit, and by reiterating the directive to proclaim the good news about Jesus to the world. The promise of the Spirit, who is the, the crowning joy of the new covenant, and, and the call to be a light to the nations, to be witnesses to the ends of the earth, they're not just building blocks of the, of the early church. These realities demonstrate that what was happening during this time in the first century was the fulfillment of prophecy and the promises of God that date back all the way to Genesis, being lived out as a result of the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ our Lord. Acts opens by emphasizing the verifiable fact that Jesus, after being executed in the most gruesome way ever devised by men, and then spending three days in a tomb, this Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Many individual people saw Jesus after his resurrection, including his own brother James, which likely led to the conversion of James. 500 people saw Jesus alive after he was resurrected at one time, 1 Corinthians 15. In other words, what Luke is doing is grounding this book in historical reality. He wrote at a time when people were still alive who could verify what he was writing. I love the way, I love the way Luke puts it here in, in verse 3. Speaking of Jesus, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering. 
Jesus presented himself alive. This is the foundational truth that, that, that undergirds Acts and is the centerpiece of our hope. Because Christianity is, is not a religious philosophy. It is a witness to the reality that we serve a resurrected king who even at this moment reigns in glory. Oh, much more coming on that next week. For now, let's exalt in, in our confession that Jesus is alive. Indeed, we've already been singing about it this morning. This is the central joy of our worship, not just this morning, but every morning. The reality that Jesus is alive. Because Jesus is alive, we have hope in this world that our efforts to share the gospel are not in vain. Because Jesus is alive, we have hope that, that all of the brokenness in this world will one day be reconciled. Because Jesus is alive, we have hope that, that despite, despite the pain of this world, joy unimaginable, and joy unending, this joy is coming. Because Jesus is alive, we have hope that, that enduring all things in this life will one day end in glory. Because Jesus is alive, we hope that our sin will not have the final word over our lives. Because Jesus is alive, we have hope that Satan will not get the final word in this world. Because Jesus is alive, we are 100% confident that death will not get the final word over us. Because Jesus is alive, one day in the presence of our, our resurrected and eternally reigning king, we will together declare, Oh death, where is your victory now? Oh, death, where is your sting now? King Jesus won. You can't scare us anymore. You can't cause us to suffer anymore because our king delivered us from you. Our king conquered you. Death, our king defeated you. Our king destroyed you. The grave could not hold him because, because you, death, had no claim on him. King Jesus is alive. And his glorious word declares that we will reign with him forever. That's true for only one reason. Jesus is alive and reigning now. Now this book is traditionally referred to as the Acts of the Apostles. But Luke tells us what he's writing about in the, in the first verse. He said, formerly I was writing about all Jesus began to do and to teach. The implication is now he's writing about everything else that Jesus is doing and teaching. There's only one way that that could be possible. And that is if Jesus is in fact alive. That Jesus is alive and sovereignly reigning over us on high even now. The book of Acts, as is true of every book in the canon, is ultimately about Jesus. 
The book of Acts is also centrally about Jesus and of his call for us to witness about him even to the end of the earth. So may God's spirit lead us as we walk through this book together in the coming days. And may God's spirit embolden us to fulfill this great commission. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful that each and every one of your promises is true, that each and every one of your promises is yes and amen in Christ. Thank you that you resurrected Jesus from the dead. Thank you that we therefore have the hope of resurrection ourselves. Father, we love to exult in the greatness of who you are and of what you have done. But perhaps preeminently, above all things, we celebrate your grace in this reality that Jesus is alive. Lead us by your spirit now, we pray in his name. Amen.